Good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. This is the 114th edition of the show. Thanks for being with us. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be highlighting a conversation I had with Lauren Cardelli, who works with A Growing Culture, an organization that works to advance the culture of farmer autonomy and agroecological innovation. This conversation is attempting to sort of decode the ways that the corporatization of agriculture, going back to the green revolution, quote unquote, um, is tied into a framework of neo-colonial power. So how are agricultural operating systems globally and the commodity markets that really define power relations and finances around agricultural production structured by histories of colonialism and looking at the importance of critically decoding power systems in relation to agricultural markets, agricultural production, uh, the ownership of seeds, the patenting of seeds. We look at a lot of different issues uh, within this conversation and I hope that those points are starting or jump off points to explore more if you'd like. I think that this interview addresses a lot, but within it, we see a lot of important um, small focus points that are outside of the mainstream discourse around quote unquote food security, but looking more critically at the power systems at play in relation to agriculture and food production. So looking at things from the lens of food sovereignty and how that ties into resisting colonialism. I was put in touch with Lauren by friends at an organization that I work with called Grain, grain.org. I'd encourage people to look up their work. Um, and we recorded this conversation in Montreal, so I'm, I'm sharing it here on Free City Radio. Um, here we go. Hi, um, my name is Lauren Cardelli, um, and I work with The Growing Culture, uh, an organization committed to storytelling and narrative change around collective solidarity and liberation through land, agriculture, and seed rights. So there is a huge disconnection between food systems, how they translate into urban environments. A lot of people who will be listening to this program live in an urban environment. Um, a lot of indigenous um, land-based movements and also peasant organizations have been campaigning for years uh, throughout the Americas particularly I'm thinking to highlight and underline the connection between the land and our food systems. Um, corporate agriculture has created a breach between the urban environment and food production and we've seen the growing corporatization of agriculture. Maybe could you talk about this breach and highlight a few specific examples of why speaking about food systems' actual relationship to territory and land is important for us to understand? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this can be unpacked for a few hours because um, this is essentially at the heart of a lot of um, the work that we're doing. I think... First of all, I think it's really important to understand the conditions of hyper-urbanization um, and what the neoliberal and capitalist agenda has done to that, which is um, a form of 
apartheid or imprisonment of uh, lower economic um, demographics. Um, and I think it's really essential to, to center and focus on that, right? Like, um, what we have is systems that then negate agency and choice and determination in what we're eating, what we're deciding to eat, right? Um, so, like, let's center that for a minute. And then let's center the industrialization and green revolution models whose explicit goal is to, A, make the agricultural sector indistinguishable from other sectors, B, push migration of rural people into urban centers, right? Um, so that's feeding that first system that we just named, right? Um, and when you look at that, you can then look at uh, the prison to urban pipeline that exists as well. Um, and I think you can start to conceptualize the motive and goals of our food system in a way where why food sovereignty is so important, right? Um, because our industrial system is the consolidation of modern-day pharaohs, empires, or, you know, today's corporations, ABCD, um, into a controlling mechanism which negates humanity and the environment, uh, strips agency of peasants and urban folk in food choice, food access, and what now, right? Like, um, so the food sovereignty movement was birthed out of a response to food aid, right? You look at food aid as SNAP or, you know, um, you know food kitchens in, in cities. You can also look at food aid as the, um, the pushing of and undercutting local economies and rural communities through subsidized corn and soy um, that USAID and, and other entities, governments do. Um, and so food sovereignty was birthed out of that um, because they saw the weaponization of food. Mm -hmm. and, and, and food becomes this amazing double-edged sword, I guess, of, mm -hmm. of thinking of like, it could be the tool for emancipation and liberation, or it could be the ultimate tool for colonization, right? At the root of the word colonization is culari, which means to cultivate. So it it's, goes hand in hand, and I think Raj Patel says it the best when he criticizes conversations around food security and says, we can be food secure in a prison. Um, is that what we want? Mm -hmm. That's what the industrial system wants, but is that what we want? So we're forced with that mm -hmm. understanding of that this is a crisis of like agency that we need to to address and food sovereignty links consumers and producers to reclaim sovereignty uh, determination and choice over a food system that past president future negates that yeah well i think often when people think about the crisis of urbanization uh, and the displacement of rural communities or peasant communities, the framing ends with sort of maybe a recognition that there is a crisis of like basic social inequality within urban settings that we're talking about. Well, any centers really globally. Um, but there's not really an exploration of the ways that food systems and like the corporatization of agriculture has created displacement within, you know, within you know, peasant ter territories or indigenous territories, right? It's sort of like people have come to the urban setting for quote-unquote opportunity. And then there's some recognition that once people arrive, that there is a crisis of 
uh, inequality within the urban setting, and that's sort of where the liberal narrative stops. There's no an- an analysis about why that displacement happens and how there's actual policies and corporate agricultural uh, frameworks that have created that displacement oh, within the rural environment. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like uh, our 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 neoliberal agenda in agriculture is moving for a world without farmers or agriculture. Like when agriculture became agribusiness, we didn't lose the focus on agriculture and the environment. We lost the culture. <laughs> and um, and that shift is, is front and center. And when you read uh, the foundational texts and scripts and, and messaging of, of green revolution agendas, they, they're very explicit about that, right? And I think what's really interesting is you see right now, if you took a map of of global biodiversity and you took a map of cultural diversity which is best determined through lingual diversity um, and you held them up next to each other you'd see that they're one and the same there's no culture uh, without nature there's no nature without culture uh, so when just just for people who might not have that much background on the green revolution or um, yeah yeah just 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 a brief sort of uh, point about how that extends today because I think people might remember that term from the 70s and 80s or even before and sort of like the, the industrialization of agriculture and sort of the positive spin that liberal narratives sustain around like uh, food security as, as you mentioned and I really appreci- appreciate you making that distinction between food security and food sovereignty. So you're asking for a bit of, bit of a breakdown on, on Green Revolution? Yeah, briefly, just so, I mean, where does that term come from? And, and why is it important to problematize that term? <laughs> God, yeah. Um, perfect. So let's jump into that. But, but just real quick first is that those, when I, when I was referencing those maps, I think, and I think this tells the story of the Green Revolution too, is that now if you took a map of land grabbing, the corporate theft... Uh, land grabbing is land grabbing is sorry yeah no um, problem. I appreciate this land grabbing is I mean it's one of those things that's that's poorly defined um, but uh, land grabbing is foreign entities consolidating control buying up purchasing land displacing local autonomy and peasant indigenous communities of course um, it's used to build out huge oil palm plantations or sugar plantations um and so this land grabbing, if you took a map of all of the land grabbing in the world, it's in the same, it looks exactly the same map as the, you know, the biodiversity and cultural diversity. So like those communities that are holding that are the greatest threat to the industrialization, right? The first or, the first two maps represent agriculture. And then the final map of land grabbing uh, is the map of the industrialization or the neoliberal agenda, right? Uh, which is to displace those communities and steal the land. Um, as Thomas Sankara says, those who feed you control you. Um, so you back now to the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was uh, an idea, sadly uh, awarded and highly recognized idea by Nobel Institute and others, uh, uh, that was an agenda to push um, the industrialization of agriculture. Right. So at the forefront of the conceptualization was that uh, the reason hunger exists is because we don't produce enough food, right? 
So to eradicate hunger, we have to produce more food. That's the logic framing that Norman Borlaug, uh, who's coined as the father, used to, to advance the industrial agenda, which was uh, coming after the war. There's a way to use uh, oil reserves um, and bring fuel economies into shaping agricultural systems um, through heavy petroleum-based products. Now, now, at the heart of this is the greatest myth of agriculture, right? Is that uh, hunger exists because of a lack of food or production, right? Like, we produce enough food for 1.5 times the world's population. Uh, we produce enough food for you know, over 11 billion people. Yet, in a population of 7 billion, 1.2 billion go to bed hungry. So, like, how does that math work without injustice in the equation, right? Um, and so... Uh, we like to perpetuate this idea that, that we need to increase more food, right? Even with the Ukraine and Russia war, um, there's still, there's not a food shortage in this world, right? Uh, and, and you can see this because I think that, and this statistic isn't, is on top of my mind, but, you know, like that fact that um, Russia and Ukraine produce like 25% of, of wheat imports, Right. Um, and I think, or something like that, this is this common statement that's coming out to say that, like, there's a wheat shortage, right? It's it's really interesting how misleading something like that is because 25 to 50% or 60% or whatever the number is, it's a lot, um, which is causing this crisis, quote-unquote, um, is really only 1.5% of wheat consumed, <laughs> Right. The vast majority of wheat consumed is locally produced, right? So, like, the importation of wheat is not, like, a, a big mechanism in, in the picture, right? So I think we have to understand that reality of uh, localized production. And I think some of the work of institutions like Grain, La Via Campesina, ETC Group have really defended that 70 to 80% of the world's food consumed is actually produced by smallholder peasant industrial... I mean, non-industrial farmers, right? Um, and so we have to look at, at those systems when we talk about green revolution, right? And what is the modernization doing? Industrialization of agriculture has not fed people. It feeds ethanol, uh, livestock, um, and food waste regimes. Um, and so the green revolution has been a failure, even though to this day, the largest vehicle uh, pushing an agricultural agenda in Africa is the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, which is backed by Rockefeller and uh, mostly Gates. Um, and uh, that is now recognizing that there's a huge market for industrialization in Africa. It's the last frontier. Asia and Latin America have already been industrialized. And so what, what does that look like today? 80 to 90 percent of the food grown in, in Africa is grown by local seeds. So what do foreign seed companies see? Huge market potential. We need to get in there, right? Um, and that's the driver of the green revolution and the industrial agenda in, in a place like Africa right now. So just just to rewind to the point about grain markets yeah. and Ukraine, it's just interesting to sort of underline the fact that a lot of the crisis is actually around um, sort of commodity markets of of, of wheat and grain, uh, not in relation to the actual capacity for local markets to serve local communities. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because, like, historically. Autonomy, uh, you know, we we had local food systems, diversified uh, 
systems that were uh, local and regional, right? The industrialization model has pushed for a global food system that dominates food systems, right? Um, and so what happens is they've created dependency, right? Um, and then they weaponize that dependency um, because once they've eradicated local infrastructure for producing and feeding your own, then not only is the system set up for shocks because it's incredibly brittle and fragile, but they can weaponize certain commodities and markets and pull you away and, and, and apply leverage into trade deals, into the World Trade Organization, to whatever, you know. Um, to assert control. Absolutely. And so it's interesting is that we get pushed into that model. Uh, um, and then, you know, the original way we were, which is sovereign and regional, um, is actually liberation. And we have to move back towards those kind of systems of, of full autonomy. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't trade, but that means that we have local infrastructure, right? So, uh, you know, we can look at regional places like, and like how industry has set up in this in the United States. Like, I think it's interesting to look at like cattle farming. I think it's the third, eighth, and 21st largest cattle farms are in Hawaii, in the United States. I mean, you have the Midwest, Texas, like we have all this, like conceptualize that for a minute, like what that means, right? So they they raise cattle, but they don't have abattoirs or um, feedlots. So therefore, uh, they raise the cows and they ship them to <laughs> the United States, to the Midwest, to Greeley, Colorado, or whatnot, to, to a feedlot, and then they ship them to an abattoir, and then they ship them back to Hawaii. Uh, that model is now extremely dependent on not only large transport, but the cheapification of fuel. But then, like, think about how those farms can now be held on leverage point if their access to certain, you know, to an abattoir, to a feedlot is cut, right? Like, um, and what that looks like for the autonomy of that farmer and their decision making, right? And like, and that's what's happening around the world now. You have that leverage point, right? Um, and the grain is really interesting that you brought up because ABCD, the four major, uh, you know, grain commodity firms, they hoard grain and they don't publicly release the records. So we don't know how much grain is in their, uh, you know, control. And their reserves, and then you have speculation that is happening, where you have people, financial markets like in Chicago. Is. Yeah, I know that the the commodities market in Chicago is sets the price for milk, for grain, for everything, and it um, and it plays with the lives of peasant and indigenous peoples, you know, uh, as like a a chess piece, you know. Um, I think this is really interesting. It always reminds me of like uh, this kind of bullshit Machiavellian kind of control or whatnot uh, and how how little uh, farmers all around the world have power in uh, setting their own price right like and and so I think when you start to understand this you see a farmer raising chickens in Arkansas uh, and then you see a farmer in Ethiopia raising coffee and you see both of them don't have autonomy over their product whether they're industrial or peasant, right? And I think that's the reality of the situation. And that's why out of the 1.2 billion that go to bed hungry, 70% of them are involved in agriculture because we're actually killing out the very people 
we um, are purporting to serve or that are feeding us. And now let's bring that back to the original message, which is urbanification, right? So now when you talk about going to the cities for opportunity, is that even a freedom of choice? Sure. <laughs> so uh, the map that you outlined uh, and sort of the crisis that is happening within rural communities, both land grabbing also, um, I think there's not a discourse connect between this reality today and colonization or sort of this idea that there is a contemporary continuation of colonization through food systems. It never ended. Yeah, so can you talk about that just just in terms of discourse and the importance of naming that today? I don't I mean yeah, I, I find it hard to conceptualize how colonization ended anywhere. Um and I think to frame colonization as a thing of the past is is like that that cartoon monkey that's like hear no see no feel no evil whatever that thing is like it's 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 insane right we live in a neo-colonial world right where uh in west africa they produce 80 percent of the world's cacao but then gets less than two percent of the hundred billion dollar revenue like i'm sorry like did colonization end right and what does that translate to the commodity market where they have no power over setting price where um the living wage is not guaranteed and where child trafficking and slave labor is pervasive, where the biggest companies cannot even claim half of their supply is child slave labor free, right? Like, like so where, when did colonization end, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I, when you have rules like UPAV, uh, which is uh, an international uh, treaty that sets the uh, rights of seed, which basically allows for biodiversity colonization without being in place in the territory, right? So you can be uh, a foreign company and now claim patent and rights over over biodiversity, right? Uh, these mechanisms have been put in place. I mean, fuck. Sorry. The um, doctrine of discovery has never been denounced, right? And and the and the liberal beacon of the Supreme Court of the United States Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion against the native tribes like to uphold Doctrine of Discovery in 2005 like like so uh, I, I mean I like the ability to steal land is still written into the code right the ability to steal uh, plant biodiversity is still written into the code you don't have to be an occupying power now to then colonize another entity you know, the trade, the debt is all weaponized to for neocolonization. It's really, um, I think, uh, critical also to underline how, say, the Sukhothmik nation or, you know, different indigenous nations that have asserted control over traditional territories through agriculture, through, you know, um, traditional systems of relationship to food and land, the response is so militarized when, you know, within the context of the Canadian state, you know, when... The response to which, which response? To, to sovereignty, right? Like when indigenous communities are asserting sovereignty over traditional lands that it's are not... militarized against them. Yes. Yeah, I would love to... Uh, uh, I think what's really important to understand this is that that militarization of local sovereignty, right? Uh, 
um, is normalized around the world, right? We can talk about Palestine. We can talk about Dakota pipelines. We can talk about, you know, the indigenous movements in, in Canada. We can talk about Zapatista, Rahava. We, we can go wherever, right? And, and start to understand what this looked like. Um, and I think we do that, 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 that rationalization comes from our definition of violence, um, where we perceive violence as originating, right? Uh, to be black in America is to be under violence. Uh, there's nothing that uh, a black man can initiate in the United States that 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 initiates violence. It's like their existence is already uh, one of of subjective system right like that 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 already constitutes violence and i think it's really important to recognize that when people indigenous peasant grassroots whatever communities resist the mm -hmm. systems of uniformity white supremacy patriarchy capitalism right um when they resist those systems of uniformity they're always labeled as something and i and i when i want to share this quote from from one of my greatest heroes um uh, paulo Freire, um who who kind of sums this up in this really brilliant space. Violence is initiated by those who oppress, who exploit, who fail others as persons, not by those who are oppressed, exploited, unrecognized. It is not the unloved who initiate disaffection, but those who cannot love because they love only themselves. It is not the helpless subject of terror who initiate terror, but the violent who with their power create the concrete situation which begets the quote-unquote rejects of life. It is not the tyrannized who initiate despotism, but the tyrants. It is not the despised who initiate hatred, but those who despise. It is not those whose humanity is denied them who negate humankind, but those who deny that humanity. Force is used not by those who have become weak under the preponderance of the strong, but by the strong who have emasculated them. For the oppressors, however, it is always the oppressed who are disaffected, who are quote-unquote violent, barbaric, wicked, or ferocious when they react to the violence of the oppressors. And once we start to understand that, we see that the movements all around the world in opposition to this are always labeled as violent and barbaric, right? And how we play into that when we use terms like riot or whatnot, like like we how we weaponize this, you know, the resistance to the resistance. Thanks for your time today. That was a conversation with Lauren Cardelli, who works with A Growing Culture, an organization that works to advance a culture of farmer autonomy and agroecological innovation. Uh, as you heard, there was a lot of uh, different strands, a lot of different points that we looked at in this interview. And I listened to it a few times in preparing for sharing it here on Free City Radio. And I think that there's a lot of pickup points to um, explore further some of the critical analysis that is uh, pointed towards within this conversation around thinking about not simply food security, but being more critical and thinking about food sovereignty and thinking about power relations in regards to agriculture and the ways that commodity markets in their efforts to control both seed production and agricultural frameworks are enforcing neocolonialism today. So um, thanks to Lauren for being on the program. Um, I'm Stefan Christoph. This is Free City Radio. We have a new episode every week. 
and are broadcasting on CGLO 1690 AM in Montreal, CKUT 90.3 FM in Geogiage in Montreal, uh, CKUW in Winnipeg uh, 95.1, and CFRC in Kingston at 101.9 FM. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. You can also subscribe to this program as a podcast on Spotify and iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Thanks for being with us. I'll go out on the broadcast today with a piece of music from an awesome artist currently based in Berlin, originally from Nairobi, Kenya, uh, Joseph Kamaru. This is um, one of his beautiful pieces. I'll talk to you next week and take care.